Today's reading is Philippians 3, 1 through 11. So then, my brothers and sisters, be glad in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to repeat the same things to you, because they will help keep you on track. Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for people who do evil things. Watch out for those who insist on mutilation. We are the circumcision. We are the ones who serve by God's Spirit and who boast in Christ Jesus. We don't put our confidence in rituals performed on the body, though I have good reason to have this kind of confidence. If anyone else has reason to put their confidence in physical advantages, I have even more. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I am from the people of Israel and the tribe of Benjamin. I am a Hebrew of the Hebrews. With respect to observing the law, I am a Pharisee. With respect to devotion to the faith, I harassed the church. With respect to righteousness under the law, I am blameless. These things were my assets, but I wrote them off as a loss for the sake of Christ. But even beyond that, I consider everything a loss in comparison with the superior value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I have lost everything for him. But what I lost, I think of as sewer trash, so that I might gain Christ and be found in him. In Christ, I have a righteousness that is not my own, and that does not come from the law, but rather from the faithfulness of Christ. It is the righteousness of God that is based on faith. The righteousness that I have comes from knowing Christ, the power of his resurrection, and the participation in his sufferings. It includes being conformed to his death so that I may perhaps reach the goal of the resurrection of the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids, you are dismissed to King's Quest as the rest of us are seated. May I speak in the name of the living God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, Open a Bible, if you would, to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians is after Galatians and Ephesians. I forgot to get the page number for you. In the beginning of this passage, uh, in verse 3, Paul tells us who we are. We belong to the people and promise of God. That's what circumcision means. Our lives are a continual act of worship with the help of the Spirit of God. And by saying yes to Jesus Christ, by glorying in Him, we say no to every other way of determining who we are, and what we value. In the middle of the passage, in verses 4 to 7, Paul recounts his own discovery that gaining Christ meant 
reevaluating everything he had valued before, and learning that nothing is more precious, nothing is more precious than knowing Christ. After naming the honors that were his by birth and that were his by lineage and that were his by his own accomplishments, Paul makes this startling judgment about all of it. It shows how much he changed his mind when he met Christ. Verse 7, he says, Whatever gain I had, whatever was an advantage or privilege for me, I counted as loss, as deficit, for the sake of Christ. And finally, at the end, Paul defines exactly what he means by knowing Christ, why it has become the most precious thing to him. The story of Jesus has become his very own. At the center of this passage is the conviction that in knowing Christ entails two transformations. First, your eyes will be transformed. Your way of seeing yourself and seeing what is precious will be changed. And second, your heart will be transformed. You will become different, and so will your life. So, we've read Philippians 3 together. Good. But there's much more depth here. How can these things be? How do they all hold together? The British author Oscar Wilde published a fairy tale 130 years ago called The Happy Prince. You heard that right. It's a fairy tale. It's the story of an unlikely friendship between a statue and a swallow, like a bird, right? Like every good fairy tale, it helps us face the sadness of the world and our lives with hope and moral courage. And if using a fairy tale in a sermon needs any more justification, uh, C.S. Lewis says somewhere that when I was 10, I read fairy tales in secret. I would have been ashamed if anyone found me doing so. Now that I'm 50, I read fairy tales openly. When I became a man, I put away childish things, including the fear of childishness and the desire to be very grown up. Someday, you will be old enough to read fairy tales again. So this is a story for a very mature audience, you see. (laughs) Like Paul to the Philippians, the happy prince helps us see how knowing Christ transforms our eyes so that we can see what is truly precious, and our heart so that we can live differently. And so I want to tell you a fairy tale. High above a city, on a tall column, stood the statue of the happy prince. He was covered in fine gold, had two bright sapphires for eyes, and a large red ruby glowed on the hilt of his sword. He was very much admired in the town. He's so beautiful, remarked one of the town councillors. I'm glad there's someone in the world who's quite happy, muttered an unhappy man as he gazed at the wonderful statue. He looks just like an angel said the town children. One night, there flew over the city a little swallow. His friends had flown to Egypt six weeks before, but he stayed behind, for he was in love with the most beautiful reed. Will you come away to Egypt with me? he had asked, but the reed shook her head. She was too attached to her home. 
Filled with sadness, the little swallow began to fly to Egypt alone. All day long he flew, and at nighttime he arrived at the city of the Happy Prince, which was on the way to Egypt. Where shall I sleep tonight, he wondered. Then he saw, saw the statue of the Happy Prince. I will sleep there, he cried, and landed just between the feet of the Happy Prince. The swallow adored his golden bedroom. Just as he was putting his head under his wing to sleep, a large drop of water fell on him. What a curious thing, he cried. There is not a single cloud in the sky, and yet it is raining. Another drop fell. What is the use of a statue if it cannot keep the rain off, he said. I must look for another place to sleep. But before he could open his wings, a third drop fell, and he looked up, and he saw. What did he see? The eyes of the happy prince were filled with tears, and the tears were running down his golden cheeks. The little swallow was filled with pity. Who are you? he asked. I'm the happy prince, said the statue. Why are you weeping then if you're happy? asked the swallow. When I was alive and had a human heart, said the statue, I did not know what tears were. For I lived in the palace of San Suchi, where sadness was not allowed to enter. In the daytime, I played with my companions in the garden, and in the evening, I led the dance in the great hall. My friends called me the happy prince, and happy I was. And so I lived, and so I died. And now that I'm dead, they have set me up here so high that I can see all the ugliness and misery of my city. And even though my heart is made of lead, I weep. The swallow was very surprised at the statue's story. Far away, continued the prince, far away in a little street there is a house. One of the windows is open, and through it I can see a woman. Her face is tired, and she has coarse hands. In a bed in the corner of the room, her little boy is lying ill. He has a fever, and he's asking for oranges. His mother has nothing to give her but river water, so he is crying. Swallow, swallow, little swallow, will you not bring her the ruby out of my sword hilt? My feet are fastened to this pedestal, and I cannot move. I, I'm waited for in Egypt, said the swallow. Swallow, swallow, little swallow, said the prince, will you not stay with me for one night and be my messenger? The boy is so thirsty, and his mother is so sad. The happy prince looked so sad that the little swallow accepted. It is very cold here, he said, but I will stay with you for one night and be your messenger. Thank you, little swallow, said the prince. So the swallow picked out the great ruby from the prince's sword and flew away with it in his beak over the roofs of the town. He passed by the cathedral tower. He passed by the palace and heard the sound of dancing. He passed over the river. He passed over the poorest neighborhood. And at last he came to the house of the mother and the boy and looked in. The boy was tossing feverishly on his bed and the mother had fallen asleep. She was so tired. In he hopped and laid the great ruby on the table beside the woman's thimble. Then the swallow flew back to the happy prince and told him what he had done. It is curious, he said, but 
I feel quite warm now, although it's so cold outside. Each night, the little swallow was determined to join his friends in Egypt, and each night the happy prince asked, Swallow, swallow, little swallow, will you not stay with me for one night longer? Each night, the swallow decided he would wait with him one night longer, for he had a good heart. On the first night, the prince asked the swallow to pluck out one of his eyes, which were made of rare sapphires, to bring it to a cold, starving playwright, and the swallow did. On the second night, the happy prince asked the swallow to pluck out his other eye, to give to a young girl whose matches fell in the gutter, and whose father would treat her very severely if he found out. I will stay with you one night longer, said the swallow, but I cannot pluck out your eye. You would be blind then. Swallow, swallow, little swallow, said the prince, please. So he plucked out the prince's other eye and darted down to town. He swooped past the match girl and slipped the jewel into the palm of her hand. What a lovely gem, cried the little girl, and she ran home laughing. Then the swallow came back to the prince. You are blind now, he said, so I will stay with you always. No, little swallow, said the poor prince, you must go away to Egypt. I will stay with you always, said the swallow, and he slept at the prince's feet. Each day the swallow would fly over the city and tell the prince what he had seen. I am covered with fine gold, said the prince. You must take it off bit by bit and give it to the poor so that they may buy food and keep warm. Piece after piece of the gold the swallow picked off till the happy prince looked quite dull and gray. Piece after piece of the fine gold he brought to the poor, and the children's faces grew rosier, and they laughed and played games in the street. We have bread now, they cried. Then the snow came. And after the snow came, the frost. The poor little swallow grew colder and colder, but he would not leave the prince. He loved him too much. He ate crumbs from outside the baker's door and tried to keep himself warm by flapping his wings. But at last, he knew he was going to die. He had just the strength to fly up to the prince's shoulder once more. Goodbye, dear prince, he murmured. Will you let me kiss your hand? I'm glad that you're going to Egypt at last, little swallow, said the prince, but you must kiss me on the lips, for I love you. It is not to Egypt I'm going, said the swallow. I am going to the house of death. Death is the brother of sleep, is he not? And he kissed the happy prince on the lips and fell down dead at his feet. At that moment, a curious crack sounded inside the statue as if something had broken. The fact is that the prince's lead heart had snapped right in two. It certainly was a dreadfully hard frost. Early the next morning, the mayor was looking in the square below, the town, the square below with the town councillors. And as they passed the statue, he looked up. Dear me, how shabby the happy prince looks, he said. How shabby indeed, cried the town councillors, who always agreed with the mayor. The ruby has fallen out of his sword, his eyes are gone, and he's no longer golden, said the mayor in disgust. He is little better than a beggar. Little better than a beggar, said the town councillors. 
And here is a dead bird at his feet, continued the mayor. We must really issue a proclamation that birds are not allowed to die here. And the town clerk made a note of the suggestion. So they pulled down the statue of the happy prince. Then they melted the statue in a furnace. And the mayor held a meeting of the council to decide what would be done with the metal. We must have another statue, of course, he said, and it shall be a statue of myself. Of myself, said each of the town councillors, and they quarreled. When I last heard of them, they were quarreling still. What a strange thing, said a workman at the foundry. This broken lead heart will not melt in the furnace. We must throw it away. So he threw it on a dust heap where the dead swallow was also lying. And God said to one of his angels, Bring me the two most precious things in that city. And the angel brought him the leaden heart and the dead bird. You have rightly chosen, said God, for in my garden of paradise this little bird shall sing evermore, and in my city of gold the happy prince shall praise me. I think this fairy tale helps prepare us for the two transformations Philippians uh, has for us, that God has for us in Philippians. The first is a transformation of our eyes. It's commonly assumed that being Christian is really about being nice people who don't do bad things like drink too much or um, do things you shouldn't do outside of marriage which are sins, of course. Don't do those things. But Christian discipleship is first about restoring our eyes, transforming our vision, so that you can see yourself in relationship to God, so that you can see the world in relationship to God, so that you can value the things that God values. This is the the kind of seeing that God gives, is the ability to understand your life in all of its complexity and texture and pain, to understand it in terms of the gospel. The biblical word for this is revelation. Oscar Wilde's fairy tale gives us uh, two vantage points from which we can see the story of the happy prince, Uh, two perspectives the human perspective, and and the divine perspective. From the human perspective, it's a story about something precious becoming something worthless. We see the statue first through the eyes of the townspeople who regard him as precious, honored, and beautiful. And the happy prince looks resplendent and glorious, covered in gold, adorned with rubies and sapphires, admired as a prince, positioned at the highest point of the city. But after the happy prince has emptied himself of gold and jewels, they say he looks little better than a beggar. They take him down and melt him to reuse the metal. This is a way of seeing that focuses on appearance, recognition, and achievement. It's what Paul calls in Philippians confidence in the flesh, in verses 3 and 4. Confidence in the flesh is Paul's name for the conviction that who you are depends on what is yours by birth, also depends on what you have made of yourself. Confidence in the flesh says we get to define who we are. It says 
we get to define what we value. And it says we get to do that for other people as well. The most striking problem with the list of reasons Paul gives for why he could have confidence in the flesh in verses 5 and 6, the great problem with them is that they aren't Jesus Christ. And the greatest offense of the list that Paul includes is that Paul includes very good things about his life. But when he reevaluates these good things about his life in comparison to knowing Christ, he doesn't just see them as less valuable. He doesn't even see them as neutral. He sees them as a waste. He says, sees them as loss and deficit. Um, it should unsettle us a little bit, at least, to consider that even good things about our lives might keep us from seeing what God considers most precious. Only at the end of The Happy Prince do we see the story from the vantage point of God, from the divine perspective. It's a story about what it means to count all things as loss in order to find what is most truly precious. When, the, when God asks the angels to bring him the two most precious things in the city, they do not return with gold or rubies or sapphires. They do not bring back the people who are most admired or most powerful. The angels bring back two hearts full of self-giving, self-emptying love for the good of others. Wasn't it Jesus, after all, who did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself for us? In the story, the swallow is the one who carries us from one way of seeing to another. At first, he sees the prince as a golden bedroom and shelter from storm, but in the end, he comes to see the world and himself just as the prince sees. He even begins begins to see for him. Like the swallow, Paul's letter is supposed to carry us from one way of seeing the world, a way determined by human expectations, confidence in the flesh, to a way of seeing determined by God's expectations. Paul came to see that nothing is more valuable than knowing Christ, a crucified Messiah. According to human expectations, Jesus is a failure and a waste, but in God's sight, he is precious and honored and loved. I wonder how your eyes need to be transformed. Where does your vision need to be corrected? If God asked you to bring the two most precious things around you to him, what would you bring? And more importantly, how would you know what is most precious to God? The second transformation is a transformation of our hearts. Um, the major transformation of heart in the story of the happy prince is not a heart of flesh becoming a heart of lead. It's the moment when the prince's whole heart becomes a broken heart. It's the moment where his involvement in the suffering of the world through self-giving love is so costly that his own heart breaks and so becomes like God's broken heart. For Paul, knowing Christ is not just a matter of the mind. Knowing Christ is not something anyone can get 
by reading books or listening to podcasts or watching TED Talks. For Paul, knowing Christ is a matter of the heart, which, biblically speaking, is where the will and the intention reside. The heart is the wellspring of life, says the Proverbs. All of this means that for Paul, knowing Christ is something you live. We know this because when Paul defines what it means to know Christ at the end of our passage this morning, he speaks about the resurrection and death of Jesus, specifically the power of Jesus' resurrection and the companionship with his sufferings. Um, Paul says in verse 10, I'm using a different translation here, and um, Tim, if you could put the slide up at this point. Um, He says, I want to know Christ. That is, I want to know the power of his resurrection, the companionship of his sufferings, by being conformed to his death so that I may perhaps reach the goal of the resurrection of the dead. Interestingly enough, the literary structure here, um, called chiasm, Uh, forms something like an arrow. Um, And so you can imagine uh, Paul speaks about resurrection here, then he speaks about suffering. Okay, I've tried to illustrate it there. We'll see how it goes. Um, Resurrection, suffering, death. Suffering and death are the tip of the arrow, and then he returns to resurrection, forms an arrow like this. Um, The arrow points toward the sufferings of Jesus. It points toward the way our lives are pressed into the shape of those sufferings. Uh, Suffering that takes the form of self-emptying love for the good of others. Suffering that's driven by the breaking of our hearts with God's own heart. Suffering, in short, that mirrors the love of Jesus. But the arrow is always open to the power and possibility of resurrection and new life. Hope in the resurrection is what sustains our loving involvement in the lives of our neighbors, friends, family, even to the point of suffering. When death looms over you, you do not need to fear, because the resurrection is always the final word. If not at the end of a life, then certainly at the end of an age. When disease threatens to steal your future, you can still be confident that it can never steal God's future for you. If you find yourself living at the threshold of suffering and glory, you are right where God wants you. You are becoming who you are by becoming like Jesus. What remains to be said? My brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Because this passage is not in the end about Paul's transformation. Neither is it primarily about your transformation. And you are not in the end the swallow whose vision is transformed. And neither are you the happy prince whose heart is transformed. You are the poor woman with the sick child who is surprised and delighted at the extravagant gift that comes from heaven, a gift that means nothing less than salvation. You are the poor 
There is nothing you can do or accomplish or make of yourself that will bring you what is most precious. But in your poverty, you rejoice because you've discovered that what is most precious has been given to you. Freely, fully, always. Except for you, the gift is not rubies or sapphires or gold. Nothing is more precious than the gift that God gives you. For God gives the most precious gift. In giving you Jesus Christ, God gives you his very self. Thanks be to God.